Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicMPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest is Eddie Yoon, who is founder of Eddie Would Grow LLC. Today we will discuss super consumers. Eddie is author of Super Consumers, A Simple, Speedy, and Sustainable Path to Superior Growth. Prior to working with his current company, he was a partner at the Cambridge Group, a strategy consulting firm that helps Fortune 500 CEOs drive growth by unlocking consumer demand. His work over the past two decades has driven over $5 billion of annual profitable growth in consumer packaged goods, durables, robotics, and energy. Eddie is one of the world's leading experts on finding and monetizing super consumers to grow and even create new categories. Eddie, welcome. Thanks, Elena, for having me. I'm excited to be here. This is such an exciting topic. I think everybody must be interested in this because based on what you say in the book, this, these consumers, although it's a small segment of the population, are in many ways the driving force of a product or a brand. Let's start with what is a super consumer? Sure. Um, super consumers, uh, the simple way to look at it are these are the most passionate and the most profitable people in a category. And so um, <clears throat> some brands may uh, have a few of them. Some brands may have a lot of them. But in general, the, the main kind of flip on this is that it's at the macro category lens. So um, uh, a particular vodka brand may have some of them, but these are people who love vodka or maybe they love wine or they love cheese or um, <clears throat> some sort of movies of some sort. And the reason why I think this is important is that um, just about every category that I've ever worked in, I've worked in a lot over my uh, two decades of growth strategy work, has some of these people. And that's, I think, the fun part of it is that you can imagine, like, um, a super consumer of uh, basketball or baseball, but some people will, like, are, do super consumers of, you know, white socks or staplers exist? And I'll say, yes, actually, I've, I've found them. And, you know, you don't judge who they are for uh, being supers, but people can get kind of passionate about almost anything, and they can spend a lot of money in that category. And when they do, my research has found that, in general, the top 10% of a category uh, are these super consumers, and they can drive anywhere from 30 to 70% of the category sales, even more category profit. But more importantly, they have about 99% of all the insights that you would want to know about how to grow your business or how to grow the category. So they're extraordinarily important. And they're even easier to find in this day and age thanks to social media and big data. So that's why I think this is really exciting uh, at this point in time. I'm glad that you started with those two, contrasting those two examples, because I remember when I saw the title of the book and I thought, well, yeah, those are going to be sport fans, of course, because (laughs) those are the people that put on the funky hats and paint their face and do all the things that sports fans do. And then when I started reading the book, one of the first examples that you share is about office supplies. <laughs> Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, well, if, if you're a fan of the movie Office Space from way back when, then you, you remember uh, Milton and his, and his famous love for his red swing line stapler. And, you know, we, we used to think that was a joke, but turns out they exist. And they're not – I mean, what's funny about the movie in contrast to the book is that 
the movie portrays Milton as a very nerdy oddball. And I think that's really the biggest uh, myth busting uh, that I'd like to do with the book is that, um, number one, that these super consumers exist everywhere, including office supplies and staplers. And they're not all Miltons. They're not all socially awkward. They're not all weird. Sometimes there are neighbors and our friends and our family members. And uh, the, the telltale sign is that we are all super consumers of something. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure I'll ask you, Elena, what you're a super consumer of, because that's just kind of who we are made to be, is that we kind of geek out on different things. And uh, what I was able to find um, through some quantitative work was that about uh, a third of the people who buy uh, office supplies in any given year are kind of these geeked out super consumers of office supplies, and they drive about 70% of the sales in the category. And when you think about it that way, it's like, you know what, should I go after the majority of the people, so the 70% of people who spend only about uh, 30% of the category, therefore they're paying about half as much of a price for a stapler or a hole puncher. And you know what? You talk to those people, they could care less. They're not engaged. They're just like, why are you asking me about uh, office supplies? Or I could flip it around and focus on the people who are not so about this stuff. And in fact, um, the data that we had gathered showed that, um, you know, the typical person might go into a Staples or an Office Depot a couple of times a year. These people are in the stores a couple of times a month. And when you have that, that's when we began to peel the onion back and say, okay, these people, they exist. They're quite valuable. They're not all kind of weird Milton-type folks, but they're just kind of regular people. And you know what? They're in the stores, so you don't actually have to work hard to find them, and you don't need to have $100 million to spend on advertising when you know they're in the store. And so, uh, as you know, Elena, from the book, we talked about this whole discovery that this office supply super consumer exists and they're you know, worthy to be uh, respected and paid attention to and try to understand what they're looking for. And you know how to find them. That led to a total revamp of a strategy that said, you know what, let's not focus on making cheaper staplers. Let's focus on the expensive ones that we have that don't jam a lot because, you know, we kept going with these people and, you know, some of these people, they go through a box of staples, uh, 5,000 staples in a weekend and, you know, that's part of their job or that's part of the hobbies that they're in. And when that happens, you know, jamming is a real problem. So we uh, recreated the retail shelf set to look like uh, where it focused on heavy-duty staplers that were 20 bucks per versus $7 for a cheap stapler, and electric staplers that were $70 per, and both the heavy-duty and electric jammed less. We put up big signs around that, and lo and behold, the, uh, two out of the three office superstores at the time uh, said, wow, this is really cool. We didn't know these people existed. Let's do this. Their category sales went up 19% in nine months. The third retailer, who was like, this is stupid. I've never heard such, you know, idiocy in my life. Like, these people don't exist or they're weird, so why would we do anything about them? And they did nothing. Their business actually went down 9% in that same time period, and it was the best proof of concept that uh, these super consumers not only exist, uh, but you could actually build a winning growth strategy around them. And that kind of began early in my career, my fascination with them, and uh, eventually led to the book. Is there a relationship between this concept and, say, for example, people who buy fountain pens, even though, of course, other options that are 
perhaps more practical, certainly more modern, for pens have existed for many years, or print books, since e-books have been around for a long time, yeah. or movie theaters? Yeah, no, it, it's, it's a great question, Elena. And, and I, I think the honest answer to your specific one is I'm not sure, but I do know um, that those kinds of relationships exist. And so uh, when uh, before I started my own firm, I was a partner at the Cambridge Group and uh, a growth strategy firm that was owned by Nielsen, and I had access to a lot of great big data there. And one of the things that we did find is exactly where you were going, Elena, is that if you were a super consumer of one category, you were a super in nine others. Uh, some of which were obvious, like some of the ones you talked about. If you're into staplers, you might be into fountain pens um, and, and paper and whatnot. Um, and then others that are non-obvious. And so what ended up uh, becoming this kind of perpetual question that I was trying to figure out is like, well, if you're a super of one, what else might you be a super in? And I don't know the answer to your question, but what I would suspect is that the people who are really into staplers and hole punches – they were kind of really into paper. And the reason why that the quality of the staple mattered is they wanted the presentation of the paper to look good as well. That they, they, they had a belief system that said it's not just the contents that are uh, written on the paper, but how the paper looks itself, that it's folded nicely, that it's not crinkled, that it is um, organized in a certain way. These are people for whom the aesthetics matter and the presentation of it matter, and therefore I would bet money that you're exactly right, that these are the same people that would invest more money in a better quality pen because that's what they believe. It's not just um, about the content, but the presentation matters as well too. Now, and if you have this information it becomes actually quite a huge strategic advantage about how you ought to think about um, not only running your own business, but in fact, uh, you know, how do you acquire new customers? Um, one of the things that I always said is that the best data about your potential customers may exist in somebody else's data set. Uh, in, in a category that's far afield from you. And one of the examples that I, I wrote about in the book is that um, people who are super consumers of life insurance, and they do exist, there are people who buy more life insurance than they need, they're super consumers of vitamins, and they're super consumers of these uh, kind of, you know, uh, prepper-type products. If, if you're worried about the end of the world, like a standby generator and multiple freezers and refrigerators and canned food, like they're all kind of the same people in when you back into it, you're like, well, why are they behaving this way? The simple answer becomes these are Boy Scouts or, and people who are just like, you know what? What I care about is the notion that um, uh, I can be prepared for life and that nothing will capture, uh, get me off my game with it. And that's what they invest money in. And that's why they have more life insurance that they need. And that's why they like vitamins. And sometimes if I understood what you were saying in, in the example of the office supplies, it's not for a reason that you might even imagine if you hadn't studied this. Sometimes yep. it's about having control over a part of your life when you don't have control of the other parts. Did I understand correctly? You you got it. And, and it's, it's, what's funny is that it's um, – I think you're getting upon a really key insight is that um, super consumers, they, they buy – three to seven times more than the average person because they have extraordinary passion for the, for the category. But it's not just about the category. There are often higher order benefits or life aspirations like control that you're getting at that are actually way underneath the surface of why they behave the way that they do. And I think to your point about 
you know, why do you spend three times as much on, on staplers? It's because it makes me feel more organized. Why do you want to feel more organized? It's because it's, as you just said, it's something that I can control and in a chaotic life. And you know that we live in chaotic times nowadays. It makes me feel better to have a little bit of control out of an uncontrollable life. And if it makes me feel better, I'm going to spend more money on it. And, you know, I think it's incumbent upon all of us who run businesses to not judge them for why they behave and why they feel that the way they do. Feelings are feelings. We all have them. We're all human. And the ability to understand that allows us to uh, drive better growth. So most of us, don't have access to this treasure drove of data that you had through Nielsen because of your former affiliation with Nielsen. And so the idea may seem very appealing. Super consumers, these numbers that you're sharing with us certainly are impressive. I can imagine a lot of people out there are just drooling figuratively with the concept. But the next question, of course, is how how do you identify who these people are, and especially in cases where they're not consumer products when you right. might be looking at services or products as complex as healthcare or even life insurance, end of world products? How yeah. do you go about finding these super consumers and knowing that they're the super consumers? Yeah. So it's a great question. And I I think the thing that I um, what's funny is that after kind of, you know, uh, 20 years of hardcore analysis and kind of building growth strategies around all of this stuff, what's been kind of funny is that I've kind of realized that the the common denominator um, and and the, the, the analysis, quote unquote, that needs to be done is around the story. And, uh, what's, what's interesting is that you don't need that many super consumers to figure this out. You just need a handful. And once you get them, you just need to learn their origin story. So in the same way that, you know, Disney has done really well with Marvel, um, in telling superhero origin stories and making a lot of money on movies with that, it's the same idea. So that, um, my advice to businesses is that, um, you just need a handful. So don't worry about getting a lot. Um, and that these super consumers are kind of walking around all over the place. So they are often uh, amongst your friends, uh, your coworkers, even your family members. Um, but my, my favorite is the coworker one. Like I remember once um, uh, working, uh, doing work for a, a pork company, and they had a bacon super consumer who worked for them in accounts payable, and they had no idea until they finally sussed out that this guy ate three pounds of bacon in a week which is kind of crazy. <laughs> and he, he was uh, infuriatingly very thin and healthy, too. So it was a kind of, you know, go figure. But, you know, these people kind of walk amongst us. And, you know, I think importantly in your industry and in your, your um, uh, employee and your organization, there are people who kind of, you know, this is just a job for them. And there are people for whom this is great. They're really interested in what the category is, you know, whether it is healthcare. Well, they invest by reading a little bit more. They go to conventions. You have people who are really into it that work with you. The second bit that I would say is you can find them on social media. Like um, most of us, as you said, don't work for, you know, Major League Baseball or football or professional sports. But you know what? If, if somebody is online on 
Facebook or on Twitter posting about a pencil or a pen, a fountain pen, as you were describing before, they're probably a super consumer. Like you, the way you spend your time is as telling as how much you spend of your own money. And so I'd say, you know, they, they walk stuff, they walk amongst you. They're on social media and you can find them pretty easily because they leave digital breadcrumbs behind. And the third one that I would say is they exist in any kind of data that you have. So the words that I hate the most in business are uh, average and national average. Like I just think that from as, as someone who spent a lot of time with numbers and building strategy around it, like it's just misleading and that the lumpiness of your data is actually all the good stuff. So whatever business that you're in, whether it's healthcare or, you know, cheese or, you know, car sales or whatever, uh, or services of some sort, your, your data is going to have some lumpiness to it is that, Hey, why does, why do people in this one particular part of the country buy a lot more? Why do they buy a lot more in this time of the year versus another time of the year? You know, and et cetera, et cetera. And that within those lumpy parts of your data, the super consumers are behaving in a way that you can find them. And so my suggestion is you look for them in your organization, friends and family, look for them on online, digitally, look for them in your data. And once you get a handful of them, you just really talk to them. And the simple question that you ask is, how did you become a super consumer? Start from the very beginning because you weren't born this way. You became this way. And it's in that evolution that you're going to find some nugget that you had not thought of beforehand that will allow you to grow faster and think of your category and your business quite differently. It may seem very obvious to you because, of course, you have spent so much energy and this is something that you live and breathe, as it were. But I'm still stuck on how do I know that someone is a super consumer? Sure. Yeah, yeah, no, no, the, 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 the simple way. So it's, it's, um, and it's, it's a good question because part of what I, my observation is that, um, whether it's academics or other consultants, like we kind of have a bad rap of making things more complicated so that, you know, you need to buy our books or, you know, hire us to explain them to people, <laughs> this and that. And I've actually tried to do the opposite of this is that, um, if you, by kind of reducing the formula of how do you know if it's a super consumer is do you spend a lot and do you care a lot? And, you know, to your point, you can do that with a lot of data if you have it, but you can also do that just kind of judgmentally by just saying, you know what, um, of all the people, if you're running a business of any some uh, sort, right, you're going to cr- come across somebody who's unusually invested in the category. They ask more questions and, and um, they're reading up about it and they're more curious and whatnot. And then similarly, you're going to find people who spend more time, more money uh, in the space. And, you know, these are just things that pop up and that every business leader that I've ever talked to, um, even on the nonprofit side, you have donors that kind of function this way too, right? Is that these people who are kind of anomalies, so to speak, they exist. And so whether you do it judgmentally or from a very rigorous quantitative fashion doesn't really matter to me. It's more of a, you know what, um, you have customers, you have stakeholders, Look for the ones that stand out um, from a high passion and high profit standpoint and just talk to them. And over time, like you'll see that like it's not really a problem if you get it wrong. If you talk to somebody who is at least even a little above average and say, how did you get from, 
you know, some, you, at some point you were a non-customer of a category. Now you're above average. How did you get there? Tell me the story of what triggered it there. And eventually you'll get to it in a way that I think is really good. Like I, I actually just wrote uh, an article on Inc. Magazine about how um, the former CEO of Ben & Jerry's, uh, so a large company had access to a lot of things. Um, he made it a practice that everywhere that he went, he would just meet a new super consumer. So they had a list that they'd cultivated over years. And so let's say he was traveling to Pittsburgh. He would just tell his assistant, find me some people in Pittsburgh, tell them that the CEO of Ben and Jerry's is coming and would love to buy them an ice cream or something like that. Right. And, you know, it, it, you don't have to be that. I have another friend in the same ink article, uh, Brant Fusse, who runs a company called Sumo Fish. And it's a, uh, uh, up and coming startup, t-shirt designs, graphic designs, and he spends a lot of time at festivals just meeting people and talking to them, and eventually he figures out kind of what makes his super consumers tick. And so I, I always say, like, just start trying it because you're gonna you know, mess up, but you're gonna get better. And that the same kind of, you know, it's in the same way that I say, like, you don't need a GPS to navigate. If you know where, you know, the North Star is or you know where the sun is setting, you know how to make progress towards your destination. Just keep going and then uh, improve on it as you, keep, as you progress with it. Reading between the lines a little bit, it sounds like sometimes those super consumers might be mistaken for really annoying customers. <laughs> People who care a lot and ask a lot of questions who are very engaged with the product or the service are the kind of people that sometimes company representatives might wish would go away. But it sounds from what you're saying like these are the gold, the platinum consumers that you want to value the most. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think it's that's a great point because it's, um, you know, there's, there's a saying, um, the opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference, right? The people who um, are actually death to your category or your business are the people who are like, you know, honestly, I could care less about this. Why are you bothering me with this? Or, you know what, um, the telltale sign of somebody who doesn't care will tell you, make it cheaper or make it easier for me to get. Um, whereas the super consumers, if you ask them the question, what would need to be true for you to spend twice as much on this category as you do now or pay a, uh, a price that's two times as high? The average person would laugh in your face and just tell you to go take a hike. But a super consumer would say, OK, well, if for that to be true, you'd have to make it better in this way or it'd have to make my life easier in that way. And I think to your point, Elena, somebody who's really angry or complaining um it's actually a sign of passion, as you were saying. It's a sign that they're invested and that you should pay attention to them. Now, um, what I would say is that there are some categories that have a lot of this and that you certainly want to separate out. The people who are angry that spend a lot are the obvious ones to you know, figure out how to fix. And then the people who are just kind of cranky for the sake of being cranky, but they're not actually spending a lot in the category. Those are the ones that you should still treat with empathy and with respect, but uh, separate those from the people that um, are angry and they really matter at the same time, too. But it's a great point. As I think of consumer products, sort of the Ben & Jerry example that you were shared a moment ago, or the office supplies one where you actually can ask somebody, says, well, okay, what kind of stapler would we need to make so that you would be willing to pay twice as much as you're paying now? And they can respond immediately. Those seem a lot easier 
to identify if you can get together with your ice cream lovers or product in general. When you start getting into products that are also services, say, for example, software Mm -hmm. or the examples that you shared earlier about life insurance or vitamins or things that are a product but that have a very strong link to an image, say, like a perfume. You don't just buy the liquid because of its effects. Nobody's actually going to follow you out of the store after you spray X cologne on, hopefully. (laughs) It's about the image that you have in your mind about the kind of person that it makes you if you wear this, but there are no immediate tangible effects from doing that or drinking a particular kind of wine or beer, et cetera. That seems a little bit more complex. Are there hacks, if you will, for identifying those products and services that require a little bit more deeper thinking, if you will? Yeah, it's it's um I think it's a good point because like I think services in general uh, let, let let me think about this because like so life insurance what I alluded to beforehand and even auto insurance is a better one like auto insurance is like it's probably easier for people to imagine okay you don't really need you know uh, twice as much life insurance as they say you need but. Who knows? Maybe you want to leave behind, um, you know, a bigger safety net for your family. So that's understandable. But, um, but maybe like auto insurance, super consumers also exist. And that's kind of weird to me, right? Um, and I, and I hate saying the word weird because it's judgmental, but it's, it's kind of just different in the sense that, you know, you're required to buy auto insurance. It's not like, if you have more auto insurance than you need, it's going to help you out necessarily in any way. But there are people who do that. They, they, they get the extra goodies, the, you know, the rental agreements that they have there, or they're paying for extra riders on it, or they pay for the privilege to have an agent versus just do it over the phone uh, with it. Um, then, and what's interesting about this is that um, even in categories that are services that are, you know, it seemed like it's the, like, you're not going to get two auto insurance policies for one car. That doesn't make any sense, right? But there are people for whom, as you just said before about the state, for example, where it's about control and having order in the life at the end of the day. There's emotion in every category because every category has humans in that and that the auto super consumers, what these people are, are, um, is really fascinating is that they're people who are fundamentally good drivers. In that, if you think about the way that the auto insurance industry works, it's people, um, you know, most of it's antagonistic, right? It's uh, customers and auto insurance companies saying, I'm going to get you before you get me type of a thing. You know, you get into an accident, people feel like, oh, the insurance company doesn't want to pay for it or they're going to raise my rates. And it's a very kind of hostile type of category. Um, and yet there's a segment of people who are super consumers in the space and it's measured differently. Um, but they are good drivers. Maybe they had a bad accident early in their life, and so they're very cautious. Um, they are people who are um, just naturally more conservative. And you know, what they say is, you know what? I am a good driver. I don't get into accidents, and I'm a defensive driver. And yet, why do you treat me auto insurance as if I'm about to kind of get you before you get me? 
And uh, this was the insight that Allstate had come up with some years ago. So if you've ever seen the whole, you know, uh, Dennis Haysbert on TV, when you know the the former president from the, the TV show 24, right? Uh, and he's talking about you know the benefits of accident forgiveness and good driver deductible. That came from the premise that there are people in auto insurance who care. They are good drivers and they feel like they're being treated like everybody else, like they're bad drivers and being penalized in that front. And that the way that super consumer uh, behavior is expressed is different. They're not going to buy an extra policy, but they may be more loyal, right? They may pay a higher premium for it. And that actually, like, who's going to say, yes, I want to pay more for my auto insurance. But these are people who actually said, I will pay more for a more expensive policy if you treat me fairly and you treat me with respect. And the things that are commonplace now that almost every auto insurance company has, like a good driver deductible and accident forgiveness, those were kind of mind-blowing innovations at the time that the actuaries of Allstate were like, uh, why are we doing this? We're in the business to make money. Why would we ever forgive an accident? Why would we ever reduce the deductible? But in fact, you had a set of consumers who were willing to pay a premium to be treated better um, so that uh, they could be uh, feel rewarded for an accident that they were unlikely to have. And it was a major set of growth for Allstate and a major driver of profitability in a category where you would not imagine that super consumers could exist or that strategy could exist, but that whole notion of just because it's a service, just because it's not expandable, doesn't mean that there's not an opportunity there. That's really interesting. Being a Florida resident, of course, the question that pops into my mind is hurricane insurance. Yeah. Does that extend to all forms of insurance, we talked about life and auto insurance, but home insurance certainly in places, but not just Florida, what we've seen in yeah. the Caribbean, we've seen in Texas, places that are prone to disasters, California. Yeah. Does this extend to that as well? Yes. I, I mean, I, I've seen, um, uh, to your point, about all types of insurance, I think all function in a similar fashion of in terms of it separates people, right? Like, do you believe, um, are you risk averse or are you um, like, eh, whatever happens is going to happen? And then the second dimension is, are you proactive or are you reactive? And that um, the super consumers are the people who are risk averse and proactive and they buy more insurance or they're easier to sell insurance to than any other customer that's out there, right? And so uh, the, the best example that I have that I write about in the book is um, Generac is the number one manufacturer of generators. And um, this is, I think you'll appreciate this being in Florida, but like, you know, uh, for all the terrible hurricanes and, you know, storms that you've had, if you have a generator, you're golden, right? If your power goes out because of a weather disaster and it's either, you know, uh, scorchingly hot and you have air conditioning or it's super cold in the northeast and you have heat, it makes a huge, huge difference, right? And that there, that company, um, historically, their sales were very lumpy. It's whenever a bad storm would hit then their sales would go up, right? Because you have people who are reactive, who are maybe not so, um, you know, not so risk concerned. They're like, well, that was terrible. I'm never going to go through that again. And they would buy a generator. And yet we found a small set of consumers who were buying these generators kind of off season, kind of counter seasonally, like, hey, you just bought a generator. There was no major weather event or power outage in the last, you know, few years. 
what are you doing? Because what in general we found was that, so this is a tiny category from a penetration standpoint. Very few people have these because they're expensive. And you can imagine the marketing and selling of this is like, you know, hey, Elena, let me talk to you about a category you've never heard of. Um, that is going to cost you seven to ten thousand plus or more for a bad event that may never happen. Like it's a really hard sell, right? Um, until you found out that they were super consumers in the category, and these are these proactive, risk-averse people that they were buying lots more insurance across a lot of different categories, and it made them feel good. Even if they never got the benefit of it, they felt protected, right? Um, and the same behavior we found um, is, was the whole vitamin thing, which is, ironically, if you're a super consumer of vitamins, you have to have this kind of emotional makeup of like, yeah, I'm not really sure what this is going to do for me, but I'm counting on it to kind of pay off in the end because you never know. And then you had the same people who were um, – <clears throat> they had three to four refrigerators and freezers, and this was the fascinating part of it was – you know, they loved to <clears throat> store food and they had, a, you know, eventually the selling process became it shifted from what I would say are technical specs to testimonials. Right. It was like before they were talking about, well, let me tell you about the kilowatts of the product. And they migrated away from that to say, hey, look, um, I've kind of looked at your house and your life and you got three thousand dollars worth of food stored in your refrigerator and freezers. Um Spending seven grand or ten grand on a generator is actually not a bad investment. And they would say, you know what? I'd never thought of it that way. And you're exactly right. Or the story of, let me show you the story of one guy uh, whose family um, endured this terrible storm. And you know what? They were stuck because they couldn't find a hotel that would take their family and their dog. And it was the dog. Literally, we couldn't find a home for our dog that drove a ton of generator sales for them, right? Because it's the story of that emotion, that not being in control that you alluded to about the stapler, that is really kind of the secret sauce and the magic of super consumers is that they will get you to a story that allows super consumers to sell on behalf of you to other consumers who could be like them. And that's when, as you know, you know, uh, people are less and less responsive to what big companies tell them or companies tell them in period, but they're much more responsive to other consumers that they have, they trust that they know what they're doing to recommend to them about an opportunity that they hadn't thought of beforehand. It's sort of like when you're at a stand on the side of the road and other people stop because they saw you at the stand, and so yeah. they think that stand is a good stand or whatever they're selling there is better than what's at the other stands where nobody's standing there. Is that – Yeah, it's a the- great point. It's, it, it, it's, it's, it, 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 it's the way that the world is working now, right, because your version of the stand of, like – you know, so I, I grew up in Hawaii, and um, and my, my I, we go back frequently. And there's a there's a famous shrimp food truck. This is before food trucks became a thing, right? A Giovanni's food truck on the North Shore of Oahu, and there's always a line, and people always stop because of the line that's there, right? And it's a telltale sign of like, well, those people must think it's good. Maybe it is good, and that that kind of like uh, the wisdom of the crowd. That's what Amazon is, right? You go to, why do you shop at Amazon? Sure, it's convenient. Maybe the prices are good, but the reviews, the reviews are the equivalent, a digital equivalent of the line is out the door for this particular stand. Therefore, this product or this brand must be good. And I'm going to trust and buy it sight unseen. And that's, you know, without that kind of, um, uh, crowd mentality, the, the wisdom of the crowd. And if, in fact, 
I think that's what the whole premise of super consumers is, is that, you know, you might have two food truck stands out there, one with a big crowd, and another one is your friend that you see who you know is really, really, you know, savvy and into certain kinds of food. And if they're standing there and they want to uh, wait for it, then you know you're going to follow that. So it's it's a bit of a riff on exactly what you're just saying, but so much of what people buy now today is on the basis of recommendations from others, and a recommendation from a super consumer is worth 10 times out of a normal person. That makes me think of this. Uh, I'm trying to remember how the breakdown was, but I think it was – if you break the market into if you break the market down into segments that 10% of the market or less are early adopters yep. 80% are sort of in the middle and then you have another perhaps 10% who refuse to move with the times no matter what yeah is there a relationship between early adopters and super consumers yes yeah and it's it's a great and a comparison that you're raising there. So there's certainly, uh, the, w- the way that I would say it is that every super consumer is an early adopter, but not every early adopter is a super consumer, right? So it's, it's a little bit of a, an interesting uh, Venn diagram as you've laid out there, but all super consumers are the first ones in on something. And so that's why they're great to ask about what's good and what's not good about it. And I think that the layer on um, your, your kind of, um, I'm envisioning a bell chart that you have bell curve, right? Of 10% that are early adopters, 10% that are never, right? And 80% in the middle is that what super consumers does is it takes the 80 and it slices off the chunk that is the closest to the super consumers. Cause you have uh, part of it. If, if a super consumer is somebody who buys a lot and cares a lot, there are people that I call potential super consumers. These are people who care a lot. But they're not yet buying a lot. And these are the people that actually represent the most amount of growth potential, right? So um, I, I give an example of, you know, you, you talked about wine beforehand. And there are um, tequila super consumers that, that I've, I've, I've worked with and I've met. And they know everything about tequila. They know the difference between the different blends and Reposado and Añejo and Blanco. And they know how to drink it. And it's, uh, they, drink, they have a variety of ways that they enjoy it. And then you have a whole, uh, probably if that's 10% of all tequila drinkers, you have, say, 20 to 30% of potential super consumers. These are people who like tequila. They're really into it, but they're holding a margarita in their hand because they don't know what to do. And it's just kind of like, well, I'm kind of into it, but I'm intimidated and I don't really know what to do. What do I, uh, you know, how do I get from here to there? And that a business model that allows a super consumer to show the way to a potential is a huge advantage that I think is something that I, uh, is a big opportunity uh, for businesses to think about because it breaks up that 80% into this monolith that you can't move into something that you could actually do something about, right? And so um, that part is the key part because, like, most people will say, 10, 80, and 10s. Well, I'm not going to focus on the 10 who are never going to do it. But that 10% who, who love it and the early adopters and the super consumers, why would I focus there? I'm going to focus on the 80. And when you focus on the 80, um, you stand for nothing. That's the problem. They're going to water you down. Whereas if you focus on the 10 that are the super consumers, they will pull the best part of the 80 along with you in a way that is advantaged towards you. And that's kind of the whole uh, kind of underlying premise of all of this is that you can have your cake and eat it too. Super consumers is not a niche strategy. It's a sequence. 
You start with the people who are the most passionate and profitable. You figure out how to delight them. They will pull the other people along, but if you try to go for everybody, you won't get anyone. A few minutes ago, you said risk-averse and proactive as a combination. Were you talking about the super consumers in relation to auto insurance, or does this apply to super consumers in general? Yeah, it's it's um I would say specifically for insurance, the risk averse is what makes them super, right? The people who don't like to take chances will love to buy insurance, right? Um I would say that so that that's gonna vary category to category. So outside of insurance, um it may not be the case. However, the proactive part of it I think is absolutely uh, core to every super consumer. It's, it's actually a great observation that I never really connected the dots on beforehand is that um, most super consumers are constantly thinking about the category. They buy what they like now today, but they are always looking for something different. Is there a new product or a new brand that's out there? Um, I, there's This one's more expensive. Why shouldn't I try this one and stuff? And that proactivity is kind of underlying the theme of who they are, no matter what the category is. So I, I think that's a, a great call out because the vast majority of people, sadly for those of us who are running businesses, don't think about your business that often with it. And they have lives to lead and they're doing other things, whereas super consumers are actually into the category as much as you are. And they're looking at it at a very proactive lens and that makes them easier to reach and easier to learn from and easier to innovate for. And as early consumers, I would think that they're less risk averse because they're the ones who are going out on the skinny branches and trying new things. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you can use them to kind of sort out what's good versus what's bad to your point with it. But one of the things that I I often talk about is, um, you know, in this day and age, competition has gotten pretty intense and you never know where a competitor is going to come from in that I say that these super consumers, exactly to your point, because they are in general not risk adverse in terms of trying new things in the category, is that they are the best early warning system you can have, right? It's they're the canary in the coal mine. And so when super consumers start leaving a category or a particular brand in the category, watch out. There's something going on and you don't want to be the last person standing in that room there. Uh, conversely, when super consumers starts flocking to a new brand or a new category there, that's something to think about is that there's something going on and I need to learn about it. And that um, in general, what I find is that businesses that are proactive about, um, you know, trying to figure out the future are in general are going to do better. Businesses that are looking at the past and trying to protect what they have or assume that nothing's going to change. Those are the ones who have the most problems and kind of fall behind there. And that super consumers, it's not just important from a strategy standpoint, but they are a great way to measure if something good or bad is around the corner so that you can prepare commensurately for it. You talk about the 1% uh, in, for example, in social media and I think Wikipedia and how they are so influential and how they are oftentimes the ones who are posting a lot of the content. Tell us a little bit more about that, if you would, and how that relates to identifying and finding your super consumers. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a great question. So, like, you, you see um, – uh, Within the 1% of – so what, what do they say? 1% of consumers generate 90% of the content on social media or online. And um, certainly what I would say is that 
all super consumers of a category. Uh, well, I, I, I take that back. Like, is that I think that there's reasonably good overlap between the super consumers and that one percent. But there are people who are um, like prolific Yelpers who like to review lots of things, but they may not be super consumers in a category of what they actually review. Actually, Yelp is a good one for me to talk to because um, a few years back. Um, they had um, posted the list of the top 500 restaurants, I think it was, in the world, based on Yelp reviews. And, you know, you had some really fancy pants restaurants, and, you know, I, I'm going to get these wrong, like, you know, uh, Alinea in Chicago, I know, I know that one, the French Laundry on the West Coast, and Per Se and whatnot. But, like, at the top of the list was, you know, a poke shop on the Big Island of Hawaii. And it was, I, I just laughed at it because I am a, Poke super consumer well before it got popular. I love uh, fish from Hawaii, but like the problem is that I'm like, there's no way that this cat, this run restaurant is the best in the entire world or best of Yelp, right? And the fundamental problem is that you got people who rate a lot of restaurants, but you don't necessarily know if they are expert or super consumers in the, you know, the type of food that they're rating, right? I would much more be uh, interested in you know, someone who's a top Yelper across a lot of restaurants, I am interested in them, but I'm much more interested in somebody who is an expert on fish and Hawaiian poke to tell me what the best Hawaiian poke place is than I am someone who can look across everything and say, this is what is the best there, right? So like when, so I'm, I'm, I'm a Korean American. When I go out to eat for Korean food, I'm going to trust you know, the opinion of somebody who is a hardcore Korean food eater versus somebody who likes to eat out Asian food in general. Like, there's a very big difference there. And I think that nuance is important um, from, you know, so that 1%, you know, there are people who love to create content online because that's their that that's their uh, gimmick and their shtick there within, and more power to them. But if they are not super in a particular category, then I'm not going to listen to them nearly as much as somebody who is less prolific online but actually knows the category inside and out. There have been allegations that the information you find on some of these websites has been tampered with, that it's not what the contributors put up in its entirety, that some reviews are removed, that some reviews are used to pressure the businesses into placing ads, and there's a lot of back and forth on that. So how much credence can you give to these critical websites, such as Yelp and TripAdvisor, and the list goes on, when there's so much controversy can you really trust that it's a true reflection of these super consumers? Because at some point, it might no longer be that they're contributing if their right. information is being pulled. Right. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's, I, I think it's actually, you hit upon a real problem for the industry. And uh, I, I wrote an article in the Harvard Business Review about this, about, um, you know, this was kind of my, you know, I, I don't know how to call it, my, my love letter to Yelp, like, hey, I think you could really fix things if you could um, allow us to sort the reviews differently, right? Not by, you know, this was the most helpful or the one that's gotten the most reviews or the highest score, but, like, I want to find people who rate it that are like me or are a super consumer of the category. Like I would rate that review much, much higher, right? And so this, this notion of um, some of it is, 
you know, it's uh, you can never really get rid of all the kind of paid for reviews. That's going to be a challenge. Right. But you can actually sort them to say, you know, I think TripAdvisor does this a nice way of like, you know, let me find the reviews for people who have families with young kids. Like that's actually a much more helpful sort in the reviews than, say, the rating of somebody who is a solo business traveler, which is largely irrelevant because they have different needs and different wants. And so I think that's an innovation that I'm still waiting for these review sites to be able to allow us as consumers to be able to sort them uh, more proactively across different super consumers. But the second thing that I would say is that you know you can't stop the bad people from putting up negative or not negative reviews, but like uh, commercial reviews that are not honest. But um, I would always say is that you can tell the super consumers who have posted reviews, not by the rating, but by the details of the comments that they have posted, and that the real value in meat and reviews is not the rating, but the remarks, right? And so what you're looking for are these stories that I was mentioning about super consumers who talk about, like, you know what? It's not just that this brand or this product is great. It is, let me tell you about who I am, the situation that I was in, and why this particular product or brand solved my fundamental problem. Because it is not about, is the problem good or bad, but is it about my life and the problem that I'm trying to solve for? And the, the article that I'd written in HBR around super consumers talks about Velveeta. What's interesting about these guys is that, you know, I care less about the sheer rating of Velveeta online or in a review or Yelp or whatever, but I care more about how they use it and how it performed in that situation. And so the people who are supers of Velveeta, um, Velveeta is commonly used for, you make queso dip uh, for parties and any kind of cheese dips uh, products uh, for like a, a group situation. But the people who are supers of Velveeta, what they figured out is that it's actually a fantastic product to help get your kids to eat more vegetables, right? Because they figured out that Velveeta is the best melting cheese. It may not be the best cheese, but it is the best melt. And so you take a stalk of broccoli and you put shredded cheese on it. It gets messy. It falls all over the place. Whereas Velveeta, it gets into every nook and cranny of the broccoli stalk and it makes it a wonderful different eating experience. And in fact, when you do that for kids who are not so happy to eat vegetables, they eat the vegetables. And so when you kind of imagine a review that was like, hey, Velveeta is the best, it's the awesomest, and you should buy it, versus like, hey, you know, I was a little skeptical, but I'm a parent, and I was having trouble getting my kids to eat vegetables, and then now I do this, and you know what? They eat more vegetables, and so what if they eat more cheese with it? I'm, I'm kind of taking the good and the bad with it in that I just wanted them to expand their palates, and now they're doing it. And that specificity you come across in reviews those are the reviews from super consumers, and those are the ones that are the most valuable. And I think that all of these companies, um, whether it's sorting the reviews better by super consumer type of consumer, uh, or uh, I think as uh, AI becomes a, a much more prominent force, is the ability to mine and sort the reviews for stories that are powerful and prescriptive and relevant for you in your life stage and situation. Like that's kind of reviews kind of 2.0 and 3.0 that – you know, uh, I'm not sure if these companies will ever get to because they're very technology focused and they're like, you know, we can rely upon, you know, technology to get us there. But this one, what I'm describing, the future utopia reviews that are sorted by super consumers and their stories, that's going to require both artificial intelligence and uh, working hand in hand and side by side with super consumers to kind of figure out the best way to get the best meat out of these reviews there. What about 
a situation where there's so much information that it's difficult to whittle it down. For example, and, and you, it may be that you have access to this data that we were talking about earlier, if you're in one of the large companies, if you are a data company such as Nielsen, et cetera. But look at the fiction category, and it doesn't have to be on Amazon or anywhere at any bookstore. There are so many titles and so many genres and subgenres. If yeah. you're an author newly entering into the market, or if you're an author who wants to branch out into a new genre, how on earth do you find your audience? And how do you find your super consumers, for that matter? Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it's a great question. And, 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 and I think, um, so any kind of entertainment, that's tricky, right? And as you mentioned, fiction writing or even TV shows and movies, and especially if you're not, you know, you don't have access to Nielsen data or you're not Netflix or, you know, Amazon and you can sort through that. But, I mean, what, what I would actually say is that, um, you know, there's more data out there for free than I think people realize. And so, like, you know, so let, let's take your fishing example as a good one there, right, is that um, <clears throat> you can actually go look on Amazon on the fiction section by books, and you can click on it, and you can see what the ranking, the sales ranking is, right? And um, that data tells you something about, like, you know, what's going on there. And then you can click on it and say, what else do these people want to buy? And that tells you something else there. So it's not perfect, and it's not exactly what you need to get to, but it is a good head start. Um, Google Insights is also very similar. If you've ever done the, you know, hey, can you show me a map of the U.S. and show me who's searching for make it up, um, a fiction about a podcast host and an author talking about growth strategy. You know, one is in Velveeta and one is, I'm sorry, one is in Florida and one is uh, born and raised in Hawaii. Like, that's a very specific thing. But you can look up these, you know, what are people searching for online and where they're searching for it and stuff. And so what I would say is that my experience working with um, American Girl actually is interesting is that I think birds of a feather flock together. So it can be hard. It's not easy. Um, but you find one super consumer, it turns out they know others, right? And that um, they're the center of gravity to be found. And so it's not to say that, you know, it's a piece of cake, but I would say, you know, you're, you're not, it's not a needle in a haystack. They're kind of all around us. And the data is more readily available than you realize. But you find one, and they will lead you to others and stuff. And so, like, I, the example, another example that I give is um, I did some work in the hair loss treatment uh, space. And um turns out, like, if, if Rogaine had been launched for women specifically right out the gate, it would be four times larger because, you know, uh, hair thinning for women is actually a much bigger problem than going bald for men and stuff. And so what was fascinating was um, – we did some work in the Bay Area of San Francisco, and these women that we talked to, there were eight of them, uh, they were all strangers, but by the end of the time, uh, they were all fast friends because it turns out they had all seen the same dermatologist. They were all taking the same products. They had all gone to the same hair places because they were all on the same common quest to solve for hair thinning for women. And they turned out they knew more people that were kind of similar to them than not. And so that my, my advice is even if you're um, not, don't have access to big data as we described beforehand, look at what's publicly available. There's more than you realize. Number one, number two, just find one, 
and ask a partial super. They will know everybody knows somebody who's a little bit more crazy about something than others. There are conventions, there's center of gravities that are there. Um, it's 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 not an impossible journey, and that I've I've yet to find a company that when they've just kind of opened their eyes and been better observers, have not been able to make significant progress in finding a super consumer for them and start to talk to them and build a relationship about their story and use it to grow faster and better. Should you start with, this may sound like a very basic thing that you should know before you start your marketing, but I'm surprised at how often it's not the case. Should you start with a list of characteristics of your own product or service so that then you can link these potential super consumers and figure out where they are, what is it that's attracting them to your life insurance or your hair care product or your Velveeta product and so forth. Is that a good first step? Yeah, I, I think a list of the characteristics of your product are great. And then I would say I would build on that to say, Elena, like, you know, um, yeah, it, it's easier for some categories versus not, but you should be, as your business runner or business leader, your best super consumer. You should – and this is the part that I think that a lot of small companies, smaller ones, realize – they don't realize the advantage they have over big companies and that the bigger the company gets, the harder it is for the people running it to actually be super consumers of what they make. And then in some cases, the bigger they are, the more like just you, you think about it like you know, big companies, the executives get paid more money and not everybody's making a luxury good. So it's actually quite difficult for a company to kind of continue to have it be led and run by people who are super consumers of their own category. And so um, beyond just the characteristics of your product, I would say, you know, you got to quote unquote, eat your own dog food, even if you don't make pet food. Right. And the more that you do that, the more you understand what it's good for, or what other people find it good for. And that own story of, your own personal story of what it does for you is as valuable as it is for anything that you do going forward. And uh, is a great article in the Boston Globe from a couple of years back about the founders of Keurig. Um, uh, one of them got administered to the ER. He thought he was having a heart attack, but it was odd because he was in his you know 30s or 40s, and they figured out that he had – Part of his issue was that he had just drunk 30 to 40 cups of coffee. <laughs> you know, some of it is not because he's just a coffee super consumer. I think he loved coffee, but he was trying to solve for um, this device that ended up kind of, you know, taking off down the road and becoming a real, becoming a real phenomenon. But the moment you stop, you know, as I said, eating your own dog food and you don't understand what it does for your life is the moment that um, you get disconnected from your own super consumers and customers, and it's not a good outcome for that. Where can our listeners find additional information beyond, of course, your own book, which has a lot of the things that we've been discussing and more and a lot of uh, end notes and references? Where else can they go? Are there websites or more articles such as the one that you just shared, a place that maybe has a lot of these references? Yeah, I, I would say um, uh, the first thing that I would say is uh, find me on LinkedIn. Um, you know, Eddie Yoon, Eddie Would Grow is my firm, but um, I have all my articles posted there, and I have about six, and it's closer to eighty now. Eighty articles that I've written about super consumers, uh, Harvard Business Review, Inc. Magazine, others, and the like. 
that um, I, I always find that I've probably written about something that almost everyone has asked me about at some level. So find me there. I'm happy to connect, and you'll have access to all my articles that I've written about there beyond the book. Uh, they're all free. Um, and then on, uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Eddie Woodgrow or my website, eddiewoodgrow.net, where, and I'm doing some revamping there, but we'll be putting up, um, all the, you know, like Elena, this podcast and others that I've done, uh, that talk about it. We'll be, uh, having more case studies on it. And I think just looking for, I, I'm aiming to kind of open source all of this stuff out there because I actually think it's pretty simple. If you've gotten a couple of reps and, you know, reading about it and hearing stories about how others have done it is a great way of uh, kind of making progress. So I, I find that it's um, a lot easier to do this than um, than people realize, and you can, that means that anyone can grow their business. What suggestions would you share with our listeners, whether they're in these large companies in the middle companies, in for-profits and non-profits and academia and media that they can take back to their work and get started on a better understanding of super consumers and how to connect with them. Yeah. I would say find that story, that singular story that is worthy of a Hollywood movie, right? And um, it's a little bit of a youth, uh, overreach maybe, but it's the point is that every business starts out with a story, right? Like somebody couldn't get access to this or they discovered this and that's how the company became um, you know, a startup and eventually a large company with it there. Um, and that every origin story is, you know, is, is such power there that if you don't have a story like the one I told about the office products and staplers or a story of, you know, um, you know, Sarah Blakely and how she started Spanx, right, which is a great story of like, you know, what it was like as a someone who's coming back into the workforce and, you know, needed to kind of reacclimate around that or like every great business story has a great story about a problem or an opportunity or something exciting that a consumer faced and either the consumer was the entrepreneur and they did it themselves or they were trying to solve for something else and voila, something amazing happened as a result of that and that if you don't have this origin story of your super consumer for your business, be it yourself or be it a customer, then you need to go find that right away. And that that's my um, biggest advice right now is that these stories are out there. Supers are eager to tell you their story. And um, if you you should be able to find them in a matter of weeks or a matter of months. And that that story um, is it, it's it. I actually find that big businesses don't have a real advantage over smaller ones because they have more information and that because there's so much information out there that people are uh, increasingly making decisions based on intuition and, and their gut with it and that even big companies with lots of data, they still make decisions that way anyway. And so better to have your intuition and your gut informed by a story of what you're trying to solve for, um, no matter what business that you're in. And uh, the sooner that you can do that, the better off you're going to be, the better your snap decisions will make will become, and the better your long-term decisions will become as well, too. Eddie, do you think this applies across the board, whether it's consumer products or healthcare or insurance, or as you were saying earlier, entertainment, which is so diverse and so fragmented? Oh yeah, it's 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 absolutely the case. One of the 
you know, healthcare is a function of people being proactive. We talked about that beforehand, right? Uh, I've seen uh, insurance companies use it to reduce costs by getting people who are actually proactive to take steps to improve their health, and it reduces their costs and makes them more successful. Uh, I would say one of my uh, clients uh, is the Hallmark Channel, and you know what? Uh, they have uh, uh, doubled, if not tripled, the revenues in the last five, six years. By basically making, you know, Christmas-like content year-round uh, for people who like family-oriented, touchy-feely good stories with it, which is exactly the opposite of what's been going on with kind of the dark dramas or, you know, Breaking Bad or HBO shows. Hallmark has bucked the trend and have, have really grown significantly as a result of that in an advertising-driven business and stuff. So I've yet to come across a business where this doesn't apply. And uh, actually, the businesses that are the kind of the farther out that you think about beyond consumer products, they actually do better as a result of it because people aren't thinking about it that way. Thank you, Eddie, for joining us from Chicago, Illinois. Thank you, Elena. It was a lot of fun. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Eddie Yoon, who is founder of Eddie Would Grow LLC, who discussed super consumers. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at hispanicmpr.com. That's editor at hispanicmpr.com.